Hey, this is Joe Caminetti Jr. Welcome to the BC Podcast. We hope it inspires you and helps you in your journey with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, hey, good morning. It's so good to have you guys with us today. Excited to be here with you. We have been in a series on the book of Psalms, and uh, this is week four. Next week, we'll close it out. And uh, it's just, we've had a lot of fun with this series. So if you missed any of the messages and you'd like to listen to them, just go to our website, believers.cc, click on watch and listen, and click on the Psalms, and you can listen to that. Last week was just, honestly, I had so much fun doing a message called Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs. Today, we're going to go another direction in the Psalms. And one of the things that I remember was, some of you know that I'm not a native of Youngstown, so... Um, I grew up in a place where there wasn't snow. If you wanted to get to snow, you had to drive about an hour away to get to snow. And so kids being who kids are, we were creative. Now, I don't know why my one cousin who was two years older than me was always the guy that sort of set this up, but I remember um, going to his house and uh, we were out there and we were having, if you can get this, we didn't have snowballs, we were having a mud ball fight. How do you know that? a mud ball fight. It was crazy. And I remember him yelling at another kid, I'm going to tell my mom, you threw a rock. You know, like sometimes rocks would get inside the mud when they hit. You know, if they hit you, it hurt, you know. So, but I remember we would just kind of try to get down behind a little mound of dirt and dig out like our own little personal foxhole. So I was like, okay, well, that just shows, you know, I wasn't too brilliant in those days. But I remember this same cousin, when he moved um, the city that I, um, that I lived next to and then uh, did all my high school years in and moved into when I was uh, 14, city right next to the one I grew up in, uh, this city at one time, uh, the, the valley where I live was all agricultural land at one time, but this city at one time housed the 10th largest olive grove in the world. And uh, my junior high was called Olivista. That was a creative name, right, Olivista. But I remember out across from my cousin Gary's house, um, he had probably 15 or 20, this open field had about 15 or 20 uncultivated wild olive trees that were just growing and just dropping these olives. And somehow or another, living that close, I guess as kids, you get bored. He figured out that if you got the right stick that had a little bit of whip in it, you could take an olive that was down on the ground and just whip it and hit people with it. So I remember going to his house and getting into an olive war. <laughs> and it was just like we were like nailing each other with these olives, and we would take the lids of trash cans, hold them up, you know, and like block it and all that stuff. And one thing I learned as a kid, you know, even way back then, is that when somebody was trying to hurt you, if you had something <clears throat> that could blunt that object's force, if you had a shield, if you will, it could allow you to handle what you couldn't handle on your own. It's like a cop with a bulletproof vest. If somebody pulls the trigger on that cop and hits the vest, typically it would take him out or her out. But you know what? When that vest is there, it absorbs the blow. It allows them to sustain what they couldn't sustain on their own. And that's much what God wants to be to us. God wants to be our refuge. That's what we're going to talk about today. And I remember one of the things that happened uh, when my son, uh, my oldest son was a senior in high school. And one day, I get a call from Lori at the office, and she said, you're not going to believe this. That's never good when someone says, you're not going to believe this. How many know that's a bad lead-in? <clears throat> she said, but the office called about our son, Stephen. Now, Stephen had never been in trouble, I don't think. Good student, smart kid, on student council and all that. He just had a good career at school. 
And they called, and she goes, no, it's not that. She said, there's a troubled student, and um, the reason we're calling is law enforcement has come in to investigate this, and the police asked that you be contacted as the parent because what we found was we found a kid on the campus who's a little bit disturbed, and he's created a hit list, and there are 10 kids that he stated that he's going to kill, and your son made the hit list. How many know that's not a list you want your son to be on? Well, when you have Columbine, which was even way back in the 90s, and you have all the stuff that's going on today, how many know as a parent, you don't sit and go, oh, well, that's nothing? No, because that is something. And kids can get a hold of stuff. We know that. You know, the internet was in existence. They could find out how to do things. And so right away, Lori and I, we began to pray God's promises. We knew Psalm 91, that God would give his angels charge over our son to protect and preserve him in all of our ways. And we began praying for him. And then I also reached out to my head usher, who was a commander with the um, LAPD at that time, Val Panacea. And uh, I said, Val, you've been in law enforcement for three decades, and you've worked a lot of situations. Tell me what I can do as a parent, you know, to protect my son. And he gave me some things. He said, here's some things you and Lori can do, and here's some things that Stephen can do. He said, but Graham, at the end of the day, unless you want to pay an armed guard to shadow your son 24 hours a day, you have to realize there's going to be a lot of points in his life where he's vulnerable, no matter what you do. And so really, Graham, I think you know this already, but really you're going to have to trust God. And we did. And I remember God brought us through that. And uh, I don't really know whatever happened to the kid. I don't really want to know what happened, but, you know, he just kind of faded away. But I remember thinking, you know, maybe what you've thought, sometimes this world we live in can just get a little bit crazy, can it? A little bit kind of weird, like there's some crazy stuff that goes on in life, that one of the things you start to realize when you just look at the news, whether it's national or international or even just local, is that this world can be a dangerous and hostile place to live in. And so when you live in this world, you really need to have protection, don't you? I'm not just talking about insurance, but you need to have protection. And there is divine protection. And here's the main thing that I really want us to catch today. And it's just simply this. The refuge that we need is the one that God provides, not the one that we create for ourselves. And so we need God as our refuge. And in Psalm 46.1, I know this verse very well because my mom had it in our guest bathroom, which is what we grew up as kids using every single day. So every day when I sat on the toilet, I hate to say that, but every day as I sat, I saw this scripture. I associate it with a bathroom. Okay, sorry about that. Anyways, it's weird. I'm getting, God's delivering me. <laughs> He's delivering me. I'm getting better. Uh, but it was Psalm 46.1, and my mom had that up on a plaque, and it just said, God is our refuge, a very present help in a time of need. Translation I use is, God is our refuge and strength, a tested help in times of trouble. And that's what that word means, that he's proven himself. And if you've walked with God for any length of time, God has proven to you again and again that he can be and is your refuge. And so I look at Psalm 62, 7. It says it this way. My victory and honor come from God alone, for he is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. And so when you think about the Bible, and you, you don't always realize this, but a good portion of our Old Testament is actually written in what's called Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry is all through the book of Psalms. Because poetry is a different way of saying things. Poetry is a way of going beneath the surface and getting deep in thought. 
And so Hebrew poetry includes something called parallelism. And what that just means is there's different types of it, but it's sort of like, to me, it's like saying something in one sentence and then finding a way to say it, the same exact thing in another sentence just slightly differently, like you're using synonyms, you're using different things. And so when it says here that God alone is, you know, that he is my victory and my honor, it says he is my refuge. Now he's not changing his thought process. He's saying God's my refuge. We get what that word means. He's saying he's also my rock. But what kind of rock is he? He's a rock that when you are on that rock, he's a rock that is so high that it's out of reach. It's inaccessible. You can't get to the person that's on that rock. And he's saying when God is our refuge, that that's who he is to us. He puts us in a place where we are inaccessible to our enemy. We are in a place that is impenetrable our rock, our fortress, and that's who God desires to be in our place. And very often, when you and I think about a refuge, we might think about, hey, a refuge just means, Graham, I just need to get away from it all. Like, I need to take, like, seriously, I need to take a vacation. I need to go to the Bahamas. I need to go to the Caribbean. I need to go sit on a beach in Jamaica and just put up a little umbrella and just sip on, you know, something kind of nice there and put my feet in the sand. Like, that's a refuge. No, that's a refuge that you create. And what we don't realize is that we create refuges in our life by, and these are all things that I've done, and I want to I qualify and say that, that what I'm about to say, there's nothing wrong with these things. But sometimes we say, if I can just earn a lot of money and financially gain the upper hand financially, advance my career, if I can put my kids in just the right schools, if I can live in just the right neighborhood, if I can get everything in my life lined up just perfect, then my life will be safe. But you know what? Here's what I found out. There is no place like that. No matter how much you and I try to control things, how many realize when you are a control freak, and I, this is the confession of a former controlled freak. My wife still says I still try to be in control. I'm, I'm just saying that she's wrong at this point in my life. Anyways, but no. I mean, when you try to control things, do you know that that's exhausting? You're the hamster on the way. It gets exhausting. When you want to be your own shield and your own protection, and your own refuge, good luck with that. It's exhausting. But there is one that you can run to that you can receive protection from, and that's our Lord. And so what I love about this is the refuge isn't so much, okay, there's problems in town, let's get out of town, let's get away from it. No. What we see here is we see the psalmist, his heart has found a place of refuge in the middle of all the trouble, in the middle of all the problems, in the middle of all the distress, his heart has found a place he can go to right where he's living. And you and I can go to that same refuge. And so again, if we're not careful, we can try to create our own, but we really want to be in that place where we're trusting him. And so the refuge we need is the one that God provides, not the one that we create. So I want to talk a little bit about David. David, to me, is an intriguing man. Did you know that 20% of our Bible that you and I love was written by murderers? Isn't that crazy? That just shows you that God can redeem anyone. And David, in fact, has that behind his name. He was a murderer at one point in his life. But he still had a heart that wanted to do right. Sometimes people have a heart that wants to do right, and they end up stepping off the curb and doing the opposite of what they want to do. And we've all been there at one level or another. But David is an amazing guy. 
He's 15, maybe 16 years old at the oldest. And the army of Israel under King Saul has been lined up in battle formation, and the Philistines are on the other side of the hill. And they're all lined up standing. It's like a scene from Braveheart where they're all going, but this big mammoth dude named Goliath walks out, bigger than Dikembe Mutombo, right? Who's got the finger wag. Anybody know Dikembe? He's got that finger wag, right? Bigger than him. We estimate him to be around nine feet tall. And apparently he wasn't just a tall rail because his spear, his spear weighed 125 pounds. Now, when I have to press 125 pounds, I have to kind of get a little lift. I can do a few reps, but it's some serious weight. Can you imagine somebody that could take 125 pounds and use it as a projectile? That dude is strong. That's like crazy strength. That's like your mind is blown. This guy comes out and challenges Israel to give him a man to fight three times a day, and it says that their heart melted away in fear. They were scared to death. He was in their heads, and along comes David, 15. 16 years old, a little shepherd boy. And right away he says, I can take that man because God is on my side. I'm not going to take him because of my strength, because God is my sword. God is my victory. And so David's already got faith in God. And you know what? He takes out Goliath in this epic battle that doesn't last very long, takes him out, and he's instantly a national hero. And not only that, he becomes the son-in-law of the king, so now he's politically connected. He's connected to a source of wealth, and he's going out in battle after battle, and his fame grows. This dude is a tried and tested warrior. And you know what's funny is even though he's this amazing warrior, he still runs into things that are bigger than him, things that intimidate him, things that are above his pay grade. And there's going to be moments in life when you and I feel like we can no longer control the outcome, like there's a point where I can't control this any longer. And at that point, we have to learn what David learned, which is that there is a refuge, there's a rock that we can go to. And listen to what he says in Psalm 61, verse 1. Listen to my cry for help, O God. Pay attention to my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I call to you when I begin to lose heart. When I begin to lose heart, that means you want to quit. You want to give up. Some of you might feel that way today. You might feel like, man, I, you don't even know how many times I've tried. Sometimes I get a chance to work with some people in these rehab centers, and, and, and I was just talking to one girl, and she wants to come to our campus when she's out in, in a couple of weeks, but she's been in rehab six times, but I just told her, don't give up. Don't quit. Sometimes our heart wants to, to, to just start to say, well, I can never. No, no, you can because of God. God makes the difference. And I love it. You begin to lose heart. He says, Lord, lead me to the rock that is high above me. For you have been my refuge, a tower of strength against the enemy. I would like to be a guest in your tent forever and to take refuge under the protection of your wings. Because guess what? There are going to be things that you and I face. There are mountains that are bigger than me. There are mountains that are bigger than you. But the mountains that we face that are bigger than us are not bigger than our God. And that's the kind of eyesight we need to have. I love another translation of this. It says, you always give me breathing room, a place to get away from it all. How about this? A lifetime pass to your safe house. David is equating God's refuge as a safe house. Do I have any Jason Bourne fans in here? Any, any Bourne fans? Come on, seriously? Like five of us have watched Jason Bourne. Okay, well, I watched a lot of those back in the day. 
I even know some of the scripts. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know it that well. But um, how many of you know Jason Bourne, this dude has to rely on safe houses because when he's on the run, he cracks into this house that's prepared. He goes into that house. He finds fresh passports, money, weapons. Why? He's being sort of set up to be able to make the next leg of his journey. And God has created a safe house for every one of us in this room, no matter what we face. So again, he's not someone that's taking a vacation, but he's running to God, and he's coming to that safe house. And if you went through the Psalms, and there's certainly more than this, but if you went through the Psalms, here's what it would show you that God is a refuge from. God is a refuge from our enemies, both physical and spiritual, from their plans to harm us, physical, spiritual, right? Ephesians 6, the armor of God. We have an enemy called Satan who creates schemes or plans to come against us. I know we don't always think of that, but it's true. It says God is our protection from that. Natural disasters and calamity, God is our protection. From unjust and corrupt leaders, God is our protection. From every single fear or anxiety that you are faced, from the arrow that flies by day and the terror by night. Terror by night That's an interesting term, but that's talking about debilitating fear, debilitating anxiety, the kind that makes you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat and say, I have no idea what I'm going to do. God is your refuge in that moment. God is there for you. And if we went on, we could find more things that God is a refuge from. But I'll tell you another thing that God is a refuge from, and that's betrayal. That's what I want to talk about a little bit for just a moment. As great of a warrior as David was. Like, he was a great warrior. You cannot deny that. But I'll tell you what he wasn't good at. Like, he was good at taking off someone's head, but he wasn't good at being a dad. Like, as skilled as he was in that one area of life, like, you could send him out, and he could bring great victory for Israel, but he couldn't couldn't parent very well. He didn't have any tools in his tool belt called parenting. He didn't know how to deal with it. And if you don't know how to deal with that, then there's going to be trouble in your house. And you know what happened? There was trouble in his house. Because he had a lot of kids, half-brothers, half-sisters. And one day, a brother decided that it would be a good idea to rape his half-sister. Amnon raped Tamar. Now, I know that rape is a vicious, it is a vicious thing today. It's devastating. It's huge. But in that culture, even as the person that was raped you were shamed as if you had done something wrong when you hadn't. And and that culture just shamed them. And this girl in that moment lost everything. I mean, she lost her future. She would never marry. That's that culture. She could never be married, and she was young. Her dreams just got, bam, pummeled, destroyed. Well, she had an older brother named Absalom. And Absalom just stood back, and he goes, okay, Dad, All right, you need to lay the hammer down on Amnon. Come on, lay the hammer down. I'm waiting for you to do it. Waits, waits, waits. You know what David does? Ignores it. Does nothing. How many know when you see something like that happen, there is a cry for justice? Do you know that's why we want all these people to win in movies against bad guys? What do you want the bad guy to get? You want him to get nailed. Because there's wired into us is this desire for justice. And so Absalom is going, where is the justice, dad? And he steps back and he realizes at a certain point, my dad is just not going to do anything. And that voice of justice turned into a voice of revenge. And he said, 
you're dead. You're dead. It may not be today, but you're dead. He didn't say it. He was pretty sharp, pretty shrewd. And two years later, he hatched a plot, and he had his brother, half-brother, executed. And when his dad found out, his dad began to cry. And Absalom didn't even wait around to find out how his dad felt about it. He left and hung out at his grandfather's house, and his grandfather just happened to be a king in a foreign land. Make the long story shorter, a couple years later, he's able to come back to Israel. He's able to reconcile with his father, and it looks like everything is good on the outside, but something in his heart turned, and he'd lost all respect for his dad. And now what he was once love and respect was now hatred and anger, and he just made a decision. Someday I'm going to take you, and I'm going to do to you what I did to my brother. I'm going to remove you from that throne. I'm going to humiliate you and disgrace you because I can't stand that you're my dad. I can't stand that you stood by there and you let that happen to my sister who loved you. And you did nothing to protect her, did nothing to avenge you, did nothing about it. You didn't even say a thing. And I'm mad at you. And he was wise. Now, the thing about him is, ladies, all the single ladies would have liked this guy. Let me tell you why. Absalom was our version of a Brad Pitt, George Clooney, or whoever else you think is really hot. He was. He was on the cover of GQ in Israel. And, and not only this, now, I don't know, maybe hair matters more to women than men. I'm assuming it does. I only had sons, so I don't know, but I'm assuming it does. Ladies, this guy had long, flowing hair. He almost would remind you of that. Who was that old European model that used to have all that long hair? I don't even know what his name was. Fabio. Yeah, yeah. He's like a Fabio-type cat, right? It says that he would cut his hair once a year. Guess how much his hair weighed once? Five pounds of hair. Dude has some serious hair. And, like, and, so he, and he's the king's son. He's connected. He's the catch. Not only that, he's charismatic. I mean, you know, you can be a charismatic leader and still have evil in your heart. And he did. And he just said, okay, I'm going to take my dad out, but I'm going to just do it slowly. And so what he did was, in those days, if your situation couldn't be handled locally, you could appeal to the highest court, which was King David's court. It'd be like us taking an appeal all the way up through the appellate system to get to the Supreme Court, and now you're at the Supreme Court. And what he would do is he'd roll his chariot out there. People knew who he was. He was a celebrity. They knew who he was, and it says all of Israel loved him. They loved him. They thought he was a great guy. And he'd stand there with his chariot and look important, and they're like, well, we know who you are. And he'd come on and go, hey, what are you here for today? And they're like, oh, man, I've been having a property dispute. I can't figure it out. Man, it's driving me crazy. This guy's trying to take half my inheritance. We've been fighting over this for years, and I'm hoping King David will settle it for me today. And he'd say, well, tell me more about your case. And he'd explain all the details, and he'd say, dude, that's an outstanding case. Like, seriously? I would rule in your favor, like, now. You'd have that now. But here's the deal. Like, if I was the guy sitting on that throne, you'd be walking away feeling good today. But you know my dad, man. You know him. He's just there preoccupied with stuff. He doesn't really have time to hear people like you. And hey, don't, don't get me wrong. I feel bad. Like, you're an equal to me. Uh, but my dad, man, he just he doesn't care. And, and look what it says happened as a result of him telling person after person this. Second Samuel 15, it says, whenever someone would treat him with special honor, like if you tried to treat him special, he'd shrug it off and treat you like an equal making him feel important. And Absalom did this to everyone who came to do business with the king, and listen to this, and stole the hearts of everyone in Israel. 
So he set this plan to steal the kingdom away from his father and kill his father. That's pretty evil. Like, instead of just going in and yelling at his dad and telling his dad off, he like he said, I'll just kill you. I'll take you out. And now his plan's in motion. Because he's charismatic and, and he knows how to draw people, he's a leader. People follow him. He's a leader. He knows how to do that. And so a lot of counselors that used to sit at King David's table, they said, we got your back, Absalom. We're on your team. A lot of David's former military leaders, generals, they said, we got your back, Absalom. We're on your team. A lot of powerful people said, we got your back, Absalom. We're on your team. Even some of the religious priests. And sure enough, the day comes. They set the plan in motion. It's a full-blown coup. They rush the, the, the uh, king's palace. King is fleeing for his life. And he does some things that, you know, are, are set or are, are intentionally done to disgrace his father and strengthen his position. He does all that. And all of a sudden, David realizes, and it had to be hard to come to this realization, he realizes, my son wants to kill me and take my throne. Like, I don't know how you would feel about that, moms or dads, if you have a kid. How would you feel about your kid saying, I just want to kill you and take your company? Like, I don't care about you. I just want your money. I want your position. I want your power. Like, get out of my life. You're dead. That would not be a very good feeling, I'm guessing. And listen to what David says as he writes in Psalm 41.9. Even my best friend, the one I trusted most, the one who shared my food has turned against me. There's nothing quite like betrayal when it comes from someone that you love. It hurts deep. It wounds deep. And this isn't the first time, by the way, that David has had to run like a dog for his life. Because if you follow his life from the time that Saul became jealous, Saul set out to kill him, sent troops after him, sent SEAL teams after him. David would say things like, there's a step between me and death. David hid in caves. And there were times he could have killed Saul and he wouldn't touch him. He said, I'm not going to do that. I won't touch God's anointed. I'm going to honor the office he's in and not bring him down. And we see David now running for his life again. And we see the army that he escapes with is way smaller than the army that's chasing him. And I wonder, what would you do when you found out you'd been betrayed by your own kid? What would you do when you were on your horse galloping as fast as you could just to get away from an army, not a person, who wanted to kill you. What would you do? Do you know we don't have to wonder what David would do? David actually pulled out an instrument, got a pen, and began to play some chords and began to sing a song to the Lord in that moment. And here's what he wrote. Written by David when he was running from his son Absalom. I have a lot of enemies, Lord. Many fight against me. Think about this. David is surrounded by an army of thousands. I can remember the amount of energy Lori and I put in just to ensuring that why one son was kept safe from one other kid. Can you imagine? And he's saying, God, you're big enough to protect me from a whole army. And he said, a lot of people are saying, it's over. This guy's done. He's history. They're saying, God won't rest you. You know, there's always going to be somebody that doesn't believe in you, but there's someone greater who does believe in you. He says, but you are my shield, and you give me victory and great honor. He's coming to the secret place. He's coming to that place of refuge 
where he's saying, God, you're my shield. You give me victory. You give me honor. And another translation says it this way. It says that you are the lifter of my head. Has anyone ever heard that term before? You're the lifter of my head. And that means when your head is hung down in shame. That means when your spirit is broken. I remember in my early 20s, I was so passionate, excited. I'd come out of Bible school, and I just thought, man, I can't wait any longer. I was out a couple years. I was serving at my local church, but I thought, I'm ready, man. I'm ready for the big show. I'm ready for the big time. And I found a group of people. They were all professionals, all white-collar people. The board was made up of a couple of dentists and a doctor, and, and they were very successful people. And I thought, this is a really good opportunity. My wife didn't agree with me, and she was right, and I was wrong. But I went in with naivete and just didn't know what I was doing. And I went in there, and after a couple of years of working there, and, and these weren't bad people. They really were not. It was just me just being young and immature. But I was kind of exposed to sometimes the politics of church. And I was so wounded when I left that church after a couple of years. I was just wounded. And I knew God had a call in my life, but the thought of doing ministry, like the thought of doing this today, would have made me want to vomit. Like I couldn't stand the thought of standing up here and preaching to you guys. That would have made me sick in my gut. And I remember when I left for like a whole year after that experience, if you asked me a question about my wife or my sons, I would tell you they were the greatest people ever, that they were awesome, that how wonderful they were. But if you asked me about me, every word I said about me was negative. Every word I said about me was bad. See, I thought failing made me a failure, and it didn't, but it defined me and owned me in that moment. And what it did was it literally, I had what the Bible calls a broken spirit. I was going to church, and thoughts would hit my head like machine gun bullets, like I couldn't hear what the preacher was saying. I couldn't. I was still there. I was being faithful, but a lot of times when I was at church, I'd sit on the back row, and I'd go, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't even know what I'm doing here. God, you have to be the answer, but you sure don't seem like it. And one day, this was back when we had Sunday night services. Some of you are old enough to remember that. And we had a Sunday night service, and there was a special guest speaker in and a guy that had a prophetic gifting. And I remember sitting at the back of the church. This is the truth. I was sitting at the back of the church, and I was just going, my, my mind was going, why am I even here? Like, this is just a waste of my time. I don't want to be here. I feel confused. I just want to get out of here. Like, something, something's not right in me, right? And this guy, after he's done preaching, comes to the very back of the church. And as he's walking that way, I, I was praying this prayer. How I many you know God doesn't answer every prayer? I was praying, God, don't let him talk to me. Don't want him to talk to me. Sometimes God ignores your prayers. And sure enough, he came over, and he stood right next to me. And he was a friend of mine. I knew him. And uh, he, he said, hey, Graham, come over here. I just want to pray for you. I go, okay. I stand up, and I'm standing like this, just like this. I'm 26 years old. I'm standing there like that. And he just said these words to me. He said, lift up your head. That's all he said. Simple thing, lift up your head. I'm standing like that. He said it again. I just stood there. He said, lift up your head. I stood there. For a year, all this stuff has been going on in me. And then he got a friend that I went to Bible school with, and he said, come and tell him to lift up his head. He came and said, Graham, you're a man of God. Lift up your head. 
and it felt like there was 150 pounds on my head. And I remember just saying the words, I can't, can't lift my head up. I was so broken and wounded inside. It's still hard for me to talk about this. I was so broken in my spirit and so wounded that I didn't feel that I had the right to lift my head to God anymore, that I had failed him, that I was a failure, that I just couldn't do it. I couldn't pick my head up. And that's when I came to understand the meaning of this verse. That there's times in your life when you feel like you can't, you can't take another step, you can't get there. But in those moments, if you will let him, he will lift your head. And you know what? He did lift my head. He lifted my head. He restored my broken heart, healed up my heart. And I remember that that night a scripture just came into my mind and it was Proverbs 4.18. The path of the righteous is like the first light at dawn which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. And something changed in me. I didn't feel completely different, but I hate to say it, I was in front of maybe 500 people and I began to cry uncontrollably. I was never more embarrassed in my life is the last thing I wanted to do, because I was good at hiding things, last thing I wanted to do was for anybody to see my pain, let alone the rest of the church. But I couldn't hold it anymore, and the dam broke. And I love what the psalmist said. He said, Lord, all my tears you've kept in your bottle. That even my tears are a prayer. That our tears are a prayer. And we don't have words to express what's going on inside of us. I thought I could get through this without tearing up, but I just want to say that I cried that, that night like never before and never since have I cried like that. But that night, I found out, you see, the Word of God isn't just something that we're supposed to look and go, oh, that's nice. No, it's meant to be experienced. It's meant to be experienced. What good, what good is what I'm sharing with? What good is this message if you can't experience it? I'm wasting your time if you can't experience it. If God cannot show up in your life and be that to you, then I have just wasted an hour of your time today. But I believe that everything in here is to be experienced. He said, I pray to you and you answer me from your sacred hill. I prayed and you heard me, you answered me. We know that one of the answers was the next day 20,000 soldiers fell dead in battle for God to rescue this one man. He said, I sleep and I wake up refreshed because you, Lord, protect me. 10,000 enemies attack me from every side, but I'm not afraid. Are you serious, David, that he laid his head down and slept like a baby that night because God had his back? He knew he would wake up refreshed and ready to go on. Why? Because, Lord, you deliver me. I don't care if there's 10,000 soldiers that have one mission to take my head off. God, you're big enough to be my shield today. You're big enough to handle this. And then finally, verse 7. Come and save me, O Lord. Break my enemy's jaws. How do you like that one? We're praying for God to like smack our enemies in the face and break their jaw. What is that? That's just a prayer for justice. God, bring justice to the situation. Because you protect and bless your people God protects and he blesses his people. And very often the way, I love the way the psalmist speaks. He always speaks of 
Lord, you are my refuge. It's personal. You are my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. But very often the psalmist's faith is released in a time of worship, in a time of praise. And you'll find that out about battles that you fight spiritually very often are won with a song. In Psalm 32, 7, it says, You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And that's what David did. David, that night when his son was on the other end of the hunting party saying, Kill that man, he began to play that instrument. He began to sing out with chord after chord and cry out to the Lord. And God heard that and turned things around. And you'll see that all through the Bible, that when you pray and you lift up a song, God begins to move. You'll find that in the book of Acts chapter 16, where Paul and Silas are in the inner prison for doing nothing wrong, only doing something right. And some of us here today, we think that when bad things happen, it's because we've done something wrong. Sometimes it's because you've done something right. You have opposition, you have resistance, and you push through it. And in Acts, it says that they prayed and sang praises, and God literally took the chains right off them, literally. So guys, I could go on and on, but I'm not going to. I could tell you more stories. But here's the bottom line. God wants to be your refuge. God wants to be the one that has your back. God wants to be your shield. He wants to absorb the blows that are intended to take you out, the blows that could take you out. But he is your shield. He is your protection. He's your fortress. Let's pray. Father, I don't know who's here today that might be going through a hard time. Maybe some of them have felt the sting of betrayal. And, and they're still feeling that sting. And Lord, I know from experience that wound doesn't always go away in day one. It's a process. Healing is a process. Restoration is a process. But Lord, we trust you to do that. Lord, I don't know if somebody is, is going through some kind of financial turmoil or maybe it's relational, maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's just something in business. I don't know. There could be a lot of things in this room. But Lord, today, if there's anyone in here today who is, as the psalmist said, beginning to lose heart. They've been losing heart. Lord, today would you strengthen their hearts. Lord, today would you pump some fresh life, courage, energy, faith, love. Would you pump that into their very soul or to their very being and show them, Lord, that you have a plan for them and that your will your will remains intact. Your gifts and callings, you don't ever give them out and then say, sorry, I made a mistake. I'm taking them back. No, you don't change your mind. Those gifts, those callings are theirs forever, no matter what's happened. So Lord, today, if there's anyone here that needs your touch, I ask that you would give them your touch, that you would give them what they need right now. I ask that. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know that I'm even accepted by God or I don't know where I stand with God. Can I just tell you something? God has already done everything he can to show you that he loves you. The Bible says, for he so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus thought that you were worth dying for. You. He thought you were worth dying for. And he wants to be your shepherd. He wants to be your refuge. He wants to be that safe house, that safe place that you can run to. He wants to help you navigate life. He wants to be that for you today. If you're here today and you're saying, you know what, Graham, I've been on a journey, and, and you know what, I just, today I feel ready. 
and I have to admit, Graham, I'm not, I'm not perfect. Like if I told you everything that was going on right now, you know, you'd say, Hey, you're, you're, you're a little suspect, but can I just tell you something? Our approach to God is never based on what we could do. Never based on what we could do, based on what he has done. I was an 18 year old person sitting at a drive-in theater, smoking dope and drinking beer with my friends watching a drive-in movie. And I'd never heard God's voice in my whole life, even been raised in church my whole life, never heard God once till that night. While I was in the middle of my sin, I heard a voice say, you thought you had to be perfect before you came to me. But if you come to me, then you'll change. See, I had the cart before the horse. I said, if I could just get my act together, then I would be able to approach God. God has it just the opposite way. He's saying, you can't get your act together. You can't be good enough. Just come to me. I want you to come to me as you are. You give me your life and I'll give you my life. And if you're here today and you want to give him your life, I want to give you that opportunity. And we're going to just pray a simple prayer. It's not a magic prayer. It's just a prayer that God will hear. And so if this is your first time and you're ready, I want you to pray with me. If this is your first time in a long time and you're ready to make that recommitment, I want you to pray with me. Church, will you help me? Let's just pray this prayer out. That's you. Say, Father, I give you my heart. I give you my life. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for my sins, that he rose from the dead. Today, I make a decision to follow you. Jesus, I call on you. Save me now. Be Lord of my life. Amen. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. There are a couple things I'd love for you to do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. That helps us spread the word and impact more people. You can also help us see others connected to God by investing today at believers.cc slash give. And if you want updates on all things Believers Church, check out believers.cc or follow us at A City Connected on Twitter and Instagram or search Believers The Connecting Place on Facebook. The best way to connect with BC is live and in person at one of our weekend worship experiences. We have locations in Boardman and Warren, and you can get the service times and plan your visit at believers.cc. Thanks for tuning in to the BC Podcast.